Welcome to Sacred Justice, a podcast that features discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how they intersect with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. Join us for the journey. Welcome back to Sacred Justice. Sacred Justice is a new podcast that will feature discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions will reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how this intersects with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus, and we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. So this is what we are going to do this week, the myth mm. of the colorblind Christian, or the myth of colorblind Christianity. Ben, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good, and I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Mia, I look forward to these because this is like the best thing I get to do in my day. <laughs> So I'm pumped to be here to talk to you about this concept of colorblind Christianity. Hmm. Hmm. I'm excited to get into it. Um, so last week we talked about beginning again. Um, for those of you who were able to catch episode one, we reflected on um, Eddie Glaude's book, Begin Again, which is rooted in Baldwin. The thought, yeah, there we go. If you're if you're able to watch, there you go. The, the thoughts of Baldwin um, sort of helped undergird that that text. Um, but I was also looking at Octavia Butler and this concept of change and God being changed mm. and that in this season of beginning again, we are called to embrace change. Um, ben, do you have any further or final reflections on this as we inch closer and closer to our gathering plan, our gathering mm. again service? <laughs> well, only that I'm I'm seeing now in a lot of places, pastors in my own, in our own circle, the Myers Park pastors, clergy group, as well as what you and I are talking about earlier, what we're seeing on Twitter. And I think we all need to brace ourselves for some change that we're not expecting. So for instance, the pastors are already, many of the other churches are already experimenting with in-person worship. And every week they're coming up with new things that didn't go well um, as they're trying to lean back into this. It's a constant period of experimentation. And if we're not all prepared to walk into a, 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 this experiment and uh, maybe we need to send out some human subject research uh, forms, uh, waivers for folks to sign before they come back to church, because we are literally going to be experimenting with everything, your faith, your traditions, your beliefs, your ideas, your level of comfort, your passion for music, all that stuff is, uh, nothing's tied down anymore, right? Like we talked about last time. So it feels, it's going to feel disorienting for a lot of folks. Some people are just going to be glad to be back in the building. And those, yeah. for those folks, we, we, we offer God's greatest blessing. Thank you for being <laughs> just easy to please and being content with, with just whatever you can have. But for a lot of folks, it's going to be uh, a, a dissatisfying and unfulfilling experience. 
And so, you know, as you've, I've heard you say to some folks like, get ready for um, finding other ways to supplement your theological and spiritual needs. Don't imagine that any one church or any one pastor or any one staff or congregation or program is going to meet all of your spiritual and theological needs. We have to do our, we have to take responsibility for our own spiritual lives. Yeah. You know, this is very interesting. You're talking about get ready for change. And I'm reading this book by uh, Claudio Carvalhas, um, uh, what's worship got to do with it. And he's talking about how the church has gotten so so used to rigidity for so long mm. and that true liturgy is is going to always be a departure from that rigid uh tradition what we thought we we were supposed to be doing the reform even Ooh. the reformed liturgical tradition which everybody loves you know like uphold he goes you know if if the people change then the liturgy changes because the, the liturgy are the people the people it, the people are the liturgy right Ooh. and so Ooh. And yeah. as we as we get closer and closer to inching into beginning again, it's important to remember that who shows up is going to shape that every week. And every week, that's going to be a different group of people, maybe. And maybe mm -hmm. some people you've literally never seen before because they've joined this church in the pandemic or some people who you won't see again because of circumstances. And so that means that we're always the liturgy is the liturgy that we thought we knew is gone. Wow. Yes. And we, we, we're repeopling the liturgy as yeah. to use Carvalho's claim there. Like we're, we're tying it more closely back to the lived experience and reality of the people in our church and the thing. So when the people change, the liturgy changed to your point and the people on our staff have changed, at, right? We have a new staff that yeah. was not the same staff when COVID hit. We have a new body of people. We have over 40, 50 members who've joined many of whom have never even been in the building who are going to come back. Many of them were the first people to sign up for this first live in-person service that we're having on the 23rd. They were like, I got to get in the building, you know? So they were the, some of the first people to sign up. Um, so we have a different people and therefore the liturgy is going to reflect the, the diversity of that body. So it's exciting on one hand, but it's also, everybody's going to be, you know, it's going to be shocking for some. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm looking forward to because, you know, I like disrupting status quo. So this is exciting mm -hmm. for me. <laughs> yeah, On a personal absolutely. <laughs> and I and I love keeping status quos in place and never messing with them and not challenging them. So it's going to be hard for me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, so, so ben, <laughs> what's in the news this week for you? What's, what's something that is going on and. I mean, there's so much. So, I mean, you got to pick one. Yeah, thing. there's we a... Could be all day. We could just do a news podcast. I'm like, let's just talk about all the news we've seen. That's another... Yeah, maybe there may be some weeks where that's all we get to. I'm, I'm guessing, you know. I'm trying not to watch a lot of news, but I, I can't help today but think about the family of uh, Andrew Brown Jr. Uh, today is the funeral for Andrew Brown Jr. And uh, I heard that... Uh, you know, William Barber is there and the clergy are there and Reverend Al Sharpton is there. And, um, it, you know, I think about uh, Andrew Brown's family. And uh, while I think it's important that the, his story and his murder have risen to the light of a, a justice issue in that city and in our nation, I also think about how hard it must be for his family to just go through the the act of burying a child, burying bearing someone that they love and care for bear, how, you know, and when you're in the media spotlight, does that make grief harder? You know, do you really, are you able to process your grief in the same way? So I think about, I, I'm praying for that family and thinking about hope for the, hoping that they have the space to grieve 
appropriately in the midst mm -hmm. of that. Today. And as as we continue to pray for for justice for uh, Andrew Brown and mm -hmm. and his death, yeah. The other um, thing, I, do you want to add to that? Before no, no, I, no. I was, was going to add uh, about Micaiah Bryant's funeral was last week as well. Right. And, and just sort of like, you know, these funerals, they come and they go. And it's just so easy to just, like, one, it's one after the next. You can't even, you can't even keep up, right? And so when you said, talk about right. his funeral, I thought about hers. And I just wasn't even tapped in that day. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do mm -hmm. the, I couldn't do the, the fanfare. Which it is a performance. So some so much of so much of black death turns into a performance now. You know, there's Public like crazy. you know, yeah. like Al Sharpton or whoever's gonna show up and do their thing, right? Or like, you know, <laughs> it just becomes a, a thing and it's I couldn't I couldn't partake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think we have to give ourselves a, a rest emotionally from this because of the onslaught of just death, black death particularly, but even mass shootings and yeah. it's constant. Um yeah, and I, I'm thinking, I was thinking a lot that week around that funeral about some articles that were written about the adultification of black girls, particularly as a father of a black daughter. Uh, Lucy is now 11. And, um, you know, just thinking about what it means for people to be identifying her as adulting earlier than kids her age and what that means to be treated as by white people predominantly, but even also black people as more mature or older. You know, and all the and all the just problems, problematic and uh, violence that can come from that. So just um, anyway, that's that was weighing on me a lot as I thought through that as well. There was something um, you wanted to say. The only other thing I want to say is like sometimes these weeks when we get here, I want to think a little bit about what's not in the news. And what's not in the news right now that I'm kind of on a soapbox about is what happened on January 6th. And here we are uh, in May in, and we have forgotten. Mm. The collective conversation has completely shifted away. And what I was really, um, why this really moved me is I read about a, a, a news station uh, based out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now that is not a urban metropolitan area. I can tell you that from that's the capital of Pennsylvania. It is not a. It is not a. It's not like New York City or something like that. It's it's surrounded by rural, and it is in the kind of place in Pennsylvania that is very very much heavily Republican, and yet they have made a decision as a as a journalism as out of an act of journalistic integrity that they are no matter who appears on their show they are going to talk about what their role was in the attack on democracy. So it doesn't matter who's on, they put underneath them either in writing or they introduce the guest reminding everybody about what they did on January 6th. And I thought that is accountability. Mm -hmm. That is what sustained accountability looks like in a country that wants to absolve and uh, create immunity around the most ridiculous forms of white behavior in American history, and we just want to forget. We're three months away, four months, whatever it's been, and five months away, and we've already forgotten. And we're not talking about it. Um, and I think the fact that that's not in the news is is deeply troubling to me. It's just a continued sense of white immunity for white people. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I I guess I thought about it briefly last week when um, what was the address to Congress or. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. didn't really watch it, but you know, I've, I've heard some funny things about it, but people were sort of tweeting about, oh, don't forget January 6th, don't forget, you know, um, but it really has, I mean, so much has happened since then too. So it's just like, is it that we are forgetting because we don't care or is it because there was like 10 mass shootings since then? So like, and I'm not laughing as a joke. It's just, it's overwhelming, you know? Yep. Yeah. So, well, uh, what are you talking about? Yeah. My news thing to this week has been, I've been furious with this, these, uh, can I curse on this? I'm not going to, we're not going to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Children may be listening. These this itch this issue with these bones that have been kept mm-hmm. in the Penn Museum, mm-hmm. U Penn Museum, or as an artifact in in a in a guy's house now. They have to remove from somebody's. If you don't know the story, first of all, I'm I'm also like pissed that I didn't learn about this in school about this move bombing. This happened what in 1985. Yeah, this is right in Philadelphia, where the, Philadelphia. the a black a black freedom. Black resistance, black liberation group was yeah, held Christian, up in the Christian movement for life, which is short to move. Right. Move. And and they held up in a house in Philadelphia and were in a standout with police, right? Mm-hmm. And then they bombed it. Didn't they the, bombed the, the so whole Philadelphia block. Police bombed the whole block, killing civilians, destroying property. Uh, and then of course killing everybody that was in, in the organization that was still in the building. Um, so tell me, tell, then take it from there, Mia, what happens to the bones then? So, so, you know, apparently, so the remains of some of the people had been moved to some sort of research center or artifact center that they, they were being kept. Um, apparently it was university, they were being shipped between university of Pennsylvania and Princeton. And so I don't know all the details about the relationship, how long they were at each place. There was also a period of time that I heard where nobody could find them. They could, nobody could find the remains. And so then about a week or so ago, this video pops up of this white woman holding up the bones as like an exhibit. Like, like, like I'm showing you the bones of this 12 and 14 year old girl, Tree Africa, and I think it's Delisha or Delisha Africa. And she's just on camera, like, you know, like, like it's a chicken bone. Like, yeah, I'm just gonna hold up the bone. What? And people, I mean, that's when I first heard the theory. So, you know, I follow a couple of academics who are like Princeton PhD students and other other people, right? Who are like, I, mm-hmm. they could not believe the lack of integrity that this woman, and also that the bones were still in possession of, you know, these, these white institutions. Like, when are they going to be buried and put to rest, right? After mm. it's been 30 years, almost 30 years, or, ooh, ooh, no, more, more than 30 years. It's been more than 30 mm-hmm. years. Um, mm-hmm. since uh, since this happened. And so there's this huge uproar um, after a bunch of protesting um, and other, other I'm sure, backdoor maneuverings. Uh, a funeral home in Philadelphia has agreed to pick up the remains of Delisha Africa and Tree Africa from the home of Alan Mann, a former Penn uh, uh, physical anthropologist. They were in his house. <laughs> And so I just was, I was just furious. And, you know, on Sunday, I'm thinking about Bones and we just finished this Lenten series about can the mm-hmm. Bones live? And I was just like, can they rest? There, there, mm. there needs to be, we don't want them to live. I don't know what, I don't know what you're searching for in the Bones. I don't know what you're trying to find out about these people or about who they were, but it's been 34 years or however long. Can they go to sleep now, right? 36 years now. So 
Um, that's sort of been on my mind, just sort of thinking about, again, the performance around Black death and the expectation that there needs to be some sort of resurrection narrative to come out of mm. something, right? And maybe mm. not. Maybe we should just sit and be, we're in Saturday, and this is where we are. We, we are in Saturday. We're in Good Friday and Saturday. Everything does not need to have a, a hope. Put the bones well, to yes. rest. <laughs> I, I don't know that bones that are not put to rest can be resurrected. Mm. You know, and I mean that both metaphorically. I mean that metaphorically also, right? That that's you know, if you've ever watched any any horror movie of any kind or read any horror, right? You understand about what happens when bones are not appropriately buried. When someone digs up some bones from a place, there is a haunting that comes. And so there will be a haunting here. There, and now this city of Philadelphia probably will be haunted by that bombing for a long time. There's no way to put all that back together. But, you know, this professor, I mean, I think that there's going to be, there's going to be, this is why you have to do, you have to have some kind of ritual now. You can't, you can't just put them back in the ground somewhere or put them back in an archive in a museum somewhere. Now you have to have, this is what ritual is for. You know, might even need to be some sacrifices made here at this point for what has happened, what has occurred. Um, but yeah, there's a you got to put them right again. And I think, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. <laughs> what is this thing about resurrecting them? Uh, that's almost like a haunt, uh, a monstrous resurrection, right? A zombification, right? Instead of an actual resurrection that took place here with these bones, um, you know, and uh it's horrible. I would strongly encourage folks to watch the documentary that was made about this, the bombing of, of move. It's called let the fire burn hmm. police, Philadelphia police clash with move. It's from 2000, uh, 2013 that was done. And uh, it's good. I mean, it's, it'll give you some information. I mean, it's also, wow. It's also at a point in time where um, that that event occurs at a point in time that is right in line with what we're going to drive into today, Mia, which is a, a moment of of colorblind racism in America that's tied to colorblind Christianity. Oh but that's what's going on in 85. You know, you have this you have this moment. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway. Well, let's get into it. So so our topic today is, you know, the myth of colorblind Christianity. I mean, I argue it's a myth, but you know, you may argue otherwise. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and so, Ben, you brought me this idea. I'll let you take it away. Um, but I do want to open us with a quote. I was looking for a quote that could capture sort of my fury around this idea of colorblind Christianity. And nobody does fury like the late James Cone, who Ooh. died uh, three years ago maybe like a week ago, but the 28th of April. So about a week ago, um, that was the anniversary of his passing. And so nobody does theory like quite like him and from a theological standpoint. And so in, in his book, um, A Black Theology of Liberation, he says, in a racist society, God is never colorblind. To say God is colorblind is analogous to saying that God is blind to justice and injustice, to right and wrong, to good and evil. Certainly this is not the picture of God revealed in the Old and New Testaments. Yahweh takes sides. 
on the one hand, Yahweh sides with Israel against the Canaanites in the occupancy in Palestine. On the other hand, Yahweh sides with the poor within the community of Israel against the rich and other political oppressors. In the New Testament, Jesus is not for all, but for the oppressed, the poor and the unwanted of society and against oppressors. The God of the biblical tradition is not uninvolved or neutral regarding human affairs. God is decidedly involved. God is active in human history, taking sides with the oppressed of the land. If God is not involved in human history, then all theology is useless and mm. Christianity itself is a mockery, a hollow, meaningless diversion. Woo. That is the late James Hell Cone. How could anyone say it better? <laughs> Rest in power, James Cone. Woo. You can't. You can't. <laughs> Take yeah, it away, Ben. I, well, I don't know what to do except to just keep going deeper from where Cone begins uh, there. I, this concept has come up for me because I've been doing a lot of anti-racist training with white, white folks. And one of the first things that happens, this is not so much the first thing that happens with our Myers Park folks, because they've done a lot of deconstruction of their Christianity before they ever get into whiteness groups. But in a lot of folk groups with other churches, and I would, I'm going to blame the Methodists since my family is Methodist. Methodists tend to be the ones who most are most apt to do this, is to, to fall back uh, into, well, to, when we first are confronted with racial, the history of slavery and racial, systemic racial injustice uh, and, and oppression, um, we, the first thing we do is to kind of fall back into our Christianity and to say things like we're all created in the image of God, right? We go back to that early Genesis text that is the foundation of so much of both Christian anthropology, theological anthropology and Christian ethics and the thought of Christian ethics. Um, but the problem is what we're really appealing to or falling back to is into and not really a true humanism maybe you'd call it or a true solidarity of the of human into people and communities and uh tribes and nations and whatever we're falling into a construction that we've made for ourselves that is really a colorblind christianity we're using in many ways the image of god as an evasion from dealing with ways in which um whiteness and white theology have um have created the systems that we live in uh, and the systems of injustice. As I'm thinking about how, so I'll, you know, have, I'll have a lot of white people say, particularly white Christians will say, you know, I don't see color, right? You know, I, I, I just see people made in the image of God. So it's like, I'm calling this like the Christian version of like colorblind racism, which is the same. It's we live in a post-racial society and, um, so I wanted to kind of get into what is colorblind racism and what is colorblind Christian racism. I mean, that's really what it's called. You said a myth, but yeah, it's like colorblind Christian racism. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's not a, it's not actually colorblindness. It's it's another form of mythology that is used to uh, as an evasion from dealing with issues. It I think it shows up most particularly in a lot of evangelical multicultural spaces. Multicultural. I was, I was just this. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a huge place for colorblind Christianity. Right. You know, I remember going into the churches that are, you know, that are multicultural evangelical church and they have the flags of every nation around the wall. Right. They have all the flags of every country. Not. And so it's, that's how they avoided the whole worship of America thing. They put every flag. Right. So now they're worshiping everybody's ethnicity or some sort of universalism. Right. That's what I think is happening to, to what Cohn was reading is that there is a there is a radical particularity in the way in which God operates in old and and then in Jesus in the New Testament. And it's a particularity on the side of people, nations, groups, communities who are oppressed for their sake. It's the Exodus narrative of God does not choose the Egyptians. The Egyptians get messed up because they're the occupiers, they're the oppressors, they're the empire. God does not side with, um, you know, the God doesn't side with even Israel when it becomes a, a nation state. It's the prof prophets siding with the poor and the marginalized and the exploited. And then in the New Testament, Jesus clearly, you know, I don't know how he became such a nice guy in the minds of many, but he's got some things to say about people who are oppressing. I mean, look at Matthew 22 and 23. Anytime you think Jesus is nice and loves you, please read Matthew 22 and 23. You know, um, he does love you, but he also wants to say some things to you about life and oppression in Matthew 22 and 23. So it's like, it, I, and those are, it, you see Jesus taking sides. He's taking sides with those being exploited by the religious establishment and those being exploited by Roman occupation and not um, taking sides with the oppressors because to do so would be to take sides with evil. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, so parsing this out, like for me, I was thinking about how colorblind racism operates. And I think if we could kind of smash these definitions together, we could really get at what might be operating here. So the first thing, like colorblind racism, um, I, I came across it being defined for me by Eduardo Bonilla Silva in his famous book, racism without racists which is just a great title. And it's his, of course, his book is saying that why is America still, you know, racially discriminatory if there's no more racists anymore? You know, nobody thinks they're racist anymore. Uh, and he says that color, so he comes up with this term that he calls colorblind racism. You know, it was, there was a sociological idea called colorblindness, but he adds racism to it, saying that actually your colorblindness is racist. And he says mm -hmm. colorblind racism is the ideology that imagines we're living in a post-racial society where skin color no longer determines the livelihood and rights of human beings, which is obviously untrue. But there's a long period from like 1970 to like last week where most people in America <laughs> thought the racism was over, right? Like yeah. just 10 years ago, you know, we were, people thought racism was, uh, was done. Um, and so one of the things that colorblind racism does is attempts to explain all racial inequality must be the outcome of non-racial things. Right. So racial inequality is a result of market dynamics or naturally occurring phenomenon like, you know, people buying houses and just happening to want to live in certain places or the lack of personal responsibility among black people. If they just, you know, work harder, Mia, I don't know why, why don't black people you work? You got to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah. Um, you don't have any laces or boots. So what do you do? Um, and then like the, the one that's really nefarious is certain groups, cultural limitations. I'm using air quotes here. If you're not seeing this video, 
And the culture, so, so one of the ways that we, this happens in American society is we say, well, you know, real problem with racism is, and, and black advancement is because there's a lack of black fathers. And it's a, we need to work on family issues and, you know, we need to, we need to get stabilized the black family. And if we could just do that, that's actually a really old racist myth that goes back to the government. Patrick Moynihan and some studies that were done that were created to study black families and study black culture as a way of saying that's why there's not black advancement so that white people didn't have to take responsibility for creating the ghettos and continuing to create racial disparities all across our country. So and colorblind racism know, masks all that. It yeah. goes even beyond the, the black father. I was I'm, I'll, I'll kind of come back to this this book by Patricia Hill Collins, who is a black feminist, mm -hmm. and I'm always this is like a Bible, and she talks about um, the welfare mom, um, yeah. and how that narrative was created to to do something similar. Like we're studying the black family. Look at all these women on welfare. If they were just you know, you know, yes. get, stop abusing the government services and get a good job and stop having all these kids, right? So there's always this, this narrative at play. That it's it's your it's your it's your fault, you know. I'm I'm just like nodding so crazy right now because you're setting up my next point. <laughs> Basically, so Kianga Yamada Taylor in a really great book called Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation charts sort of the history of racism from the point of the end of the Black Freedom Movement and I mean the kind of the end of the civil rights movement uh, to today to Black Lives Matter. And one of the things she talks about is how colorblind racism was utilized by politicians, not just people like Reagan, who clearly made the welfare queen a such a big deal that there was actually a professional wrestler called who called herself the re welfare queen. I mean, it was like a major cultural phenomenon, even though more white women were on welfare forever and have always been. Um, and more white people would take advantage of welfare than anybody else. So the idea that it was, but it was a way of using race to turn people against the welfare state. So think about, so that Kiangi Amata Taylor says that colorblind racism is always used as a way to peel black, black advancement and to strip away the welfare state. So what's happening with colorblind racism is we're saying, no, 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 there's no racism here. We're beyond that now, remember? But meanwhile, we're tearing all the social safety nets away. We are defunding every aspect of society except for policing. We've defunded schools, social service programs, welfare programs. And this is not just Republicans. This is also Carter was just as guilty of it. So was Bill Clinton. They Clinton put the nail in the coffin of the welfare state. They they are they are tearing away at welfare protections that were needed as a part of black advancement. And so what they are really doing is using the the, the gaze of colorblindness or the, the facade, the charade of this colorblind ideology to put it up to say, no, don't look here. There's no racism here. Meanwhile, they're they're stripping away every every protection black people had and every program black people had and any possibility for advancement. And colorblind racism just so happens to bring this home. Colorblind racism happens to mirror the exact same time period that Charlotte was studied for the opportunity report that was done by Roz Chetty. Mm -hmm. And that is now famously proven that Charlotte is the worst city in America for upward mobility because we fell into colorblind racism more than anybody else. And, and we're still there, Ben. We're still there. <laughs> yeah. 
That's right. That's, that's my, right. My biggest thing, I, I'm trying, you know, okay, stop tangential note. <laughs> my biggest yeah. thing in my two years of just sort of like watching what's going on here is that it's very hard to organize people who think they've made it. And so that, that counts for black people as well. So this is probably why organizing fails. And so black people have bought into this idea of colorblindness. I can't say racism because I don't believe that we can, you know, be racist, but we have bought into this as well, right? They have they have tricked us into thinking that because we have a little bit of buying power, that we are, you know, some sort of bourgeoisie class. But Joy James would argue that we are the petite bourgeoisie because we don't have enough wealth to ever be the bourgeoisie class. Mm. And so mm. this is this is what happens here in Charlotte. I mean, so it's not just 100% on white people. I think it's on whiteness as an institution. Yes. But black folk have bought into this as well. They got a five-bedroom house in the suburbs. They've made it. There's no racism. What are you talking about mm. in Charlotte? No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not equipped to talk about the black bourgeoisie. I don't know that that's my place, but I see a whole lot of it. And Kianga Yamada Taylor talks, that's basically her whole book. And she basically talks about the rise of move, well, the move away from direct action, black organizing in liberation and freedom movements that were based on nonviolent direct action or violent direct action to black people running for political office. This takes place in the late, early 70s but um and really begin leads all the way up to today and it's a it's a change in strategy of trying to attack systemic racism and her book charts the legacy of what has happened since the first black mayor uh in ohio all the way up until today and and to see what have has has black faces in high places and black political leaders and black political power made a difference for the lives of black Americans. And of course you might be unsurprised me to find that now white people will be surprised by this, but black people might be surprised to know that uh, will not be surprised to know that um, the answer is a resounding no, that in fact it's made it worse in a lot of cases. And that just like Bill Clinton had to be tough on crime to get elected Black political leaders find themselves having to be tough on crime and tough on all sorts of other areas, tough on their own people, and to adopt the same racist ideologies of cultural limitation as the problem for racism and personal responsibility as the issue of racism as a way to get elected, right? So it's the it's the black political leader who says, you know, pull up your pants. I don't want to see y'all protesting in the streets with your pants hanging down mm-hmm. and starts focusing in on like culture as the issue instead of poverty, the defunding of schools, you know, the lack of, of, of a welfare state and the lack of jobs. And and again, so it's it's again, a, another evasion of responsibility, which is the white thing. That's like, that's whiteness 101 is to not take responsibility for what's happening. And so mm-hmm. you see black political leaders, unfortunately, succumbing to participation in whiteness, right? Not deconstructing the system, but in fact, becoming another pillar within the system, uh, upholding the, the structure of white supremacy, which is really, that's hard for white people to understand because we think Black people in the right places change everything. No, uh, oh, you're you're hitting on something here. With you know, as we segue into this Christian conversation about sort of black people upholding the pillars, so much of uh, church planting culture, evangelical church planting culture, 
is is um they, a lot of these white organizations like the Orchard Group or some of like mm-hmm. the Acts Twenty Nine or Acts whatever churches. God, I hope I hope they disappear forever. Isn't that a body spray? <laughs> Act, the Book of Acts. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm- um, they they find black men to be pastors of these church plants to be like look look Uh-oh. we're not we're not racist look we just hired yeah. this, we're funding this black man's church plant but the black man is working for this very racist and ideologically backward organization and to get that funding he and it's always he has to you know uphold their tenets so mm-hmm. so how do you then define this colorblind Christian racism, you know, taking it from the, I don't want to say secular. Yeah. So here's the crazy, the crazy thing that's not so crazy. If you understand that whiteness was something created by Christians and slavery was an invention created by Christians and colonialism was an invention created by Christians. When you know that this is not going to sound that crazy, but, but for a lot of white Christians, it's going to sound horrifying. But Robert Jones has done some really good statistical analysis on this with attitudes and feelings across the country. And it's over the last 10, 15 years and just published a book called White Too Long about the church based on a lot of the statistical data. But what he found was that Christianity, being a Christian in America, makes you more racist, not less racist. And that goes for white people and black people and people of color. Being a Christian actually makes you more susceptible to racism. This is what I mean by colorblind Christianity. See, so colorblind racist Christianity is that actually there are certain forms of Christianity, the dominant form in America, participating in that makes you more racist, not less, which means that the whole like image of God, we're all made in the image of God is in church. And we're all just, we're all just children of God, beloved children is actually, is actually doing the same thing that colorblind racism is doing in American society. It is masking the, 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 it is masking a theological, um, I don't know what you would call it malpractice that is making people more racist and mm. not actually getting them involved in movements for justice and change. The same way that colorblind racism in society is rolling black the welfare state and hurting black people instead of actually, you know, there's a real co- such thing as colorblindness. It becomes this facade that um, a cover, like a, like a curtain that comes up and behind it is the racism but the curtain saying there's no racism here. And that's what's happening in the church too. And, and so it's preventing churches from doing the deep work in their own context of kind of looking at their whiteness, like we're trying mm-hmm. to do at our church. And they don't need to do that because they say, wait a second, we're, there's no white people here. There's just Christians. There's just followers of Jesus. So we don't need it. Why, why would we look at whiteness? Right. And again, that is to evade the very problem that is. And I, this brings me all the way back that, to, to a couple of quotes that I brought with me to add to Cone today. One of them comes from, and I, this, I'm trying to get at the origins of how did this happen? Like, how do we yeah. get to a place where being a Christian makes you more racist in America? And I'm going all the way back to a white woman named Lillian Smith, author of Killers of the Dream, uh, who was writing, this is back in 1945. She wrote an article called White Christian 
the white Christian and his conscience, uh, which is, you know, it's a little dated from its gender, but you know, because it's talking about men and whiteness, it kind of works. Um, so here's the, here's the quote. She says, let, let us look at ourselves with humility and honesty. The white man in America was willing neither to give up Jesus nor to give up the slave. He was willing neither to give up democracy nor white supremacy. He was willing neither to give up his conscience nor his comfortable way of life. Today, he is still unwilling, with the result that in many areas of his life, he has given up his sanity instead. And then she says, you know, we cannot understand race in America or America at all without understanding the role that conscience has played in our national drama and our personal lives. But then she says, what a profound conflict it created. Hmm. Now that's 1945, right? And I think what we see is that trying to hold slavery and Christianity together from the very beginning of the founding of this nation, it, you know, it destroyed Christianity to the point where the Christianity is not even like Frederick Douglass says between the Christianity of the, the religion of Jesus and the Christianity of this nation, I see absolutely no similarity at all. So it destroys, but, but we've never gone back in and said, we got to start over again and redo this thing and rebuild this thing because somehow this religion that we were taught thought slavery was okay. And you can't just then get rid of slavery and think that the religion that created slavery is still okay. You got to go back into the religion and deconstruct. How did we come to a point as people of faith where we thought enslaving other human beings and being Christian were compatible? And this is where Baldwin comes in. Baldwin has a very similar quote to, to, to Lillian Smith, where he says, the people who settled this country had a fatal flaw. They could recognize a human when they saw one and they knew they weren't anything but a human. But because they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they'd come here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role that chattel slavery was playing in their life was to say that the chattel were not human. Hmm. For if they weren't human, then no crime had been committed. And then he says that lie is the basis of our present trouble. And so I would say you, a religion built on a lie, which is what Amer white American Christianity is, a religion built on a lie is not a religion. It is not true. It's not related to Jesus. Jesus was all about truth and reality and honesty. And so uh, basically, I don't even know what to describe. I, I think we would, I wouldn't even call it Christianity anymore. What we have is white American folk religion. Yeah. Right. And, and well, so, yeah. yeah, and that's what it is. And it's, it's, it's this colorblindness that's continuing to keep it in place. I, you know, I have pastors that, you know, I follow closely who they don't call themselves Christian. They call themselves followers of the teachings of Jesus. And they are very intentional about that. You know, when we walk, we used to walk into church, who are we? We're followers of the teachings of Jesus. Um, mm. Because there was something about sharing this very precarious identifier that was just, it's, it's, I mean, the amount of time we have spent on this podcast, on uh, various podcasts, but in church trying to say, no, no, we're not that kind. I mean, yeah. like, just think about the energy we've invested in mm -hmm. trying to, uh, you know, reclaim and say, no, no, we're not that. Um, it's almost like we need a new term because they, this has taken over and it's filthy. And I don't I don't know if it can ever be clean again. Yeah. Well, what did well, Howard Thurman said? I'm a follower of the religion of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And the, of course, the religion of Jesus is Judaism. <laughs> so what is right. Howard saying? What are you saying? Um, it makes me wonder, you know, what does it mean to get back and, you know, get back a little bit, even maybe beyond Paul, maybe beyond some of the New Testament writings. And, um, you know, I was thinking about can um, some of those New Testament writings themselves. There's there's not you know, we can do all the exegetical jumping jacks and all the scholarship we want. There's certain texts in the Bible we can't redeem. No. We're not going to be we're not going to be able to make them work in the 21st century. They're just not going to work. And so we have to depart with some of that stuff. And these these rigid ideas of what is in the canon and what's out and what's infallible and in, in inerrant and all that garbage is not getting us anywhere. Or even just general Orthodox Christianity. Isn't it interesting, Mia, that the 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 Nicene Creed, right, or the Apostles' Creed, whatever, which one ever you want to put has so little about the life of Jesus, even the teachings of Jesus, so little about the teachings of Jesus and so much about who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. What is that, right? That's another form of evasion, right, is to try to get away from the teachings and the life and onto some kind of, you know, um, metaphysical reflections on identity, right? Oh my, I which, mean, you know, <laughs> that's another form of favorite. That was my least favorite part of, um, you know, when I was writing my ordination paper and having to, you know, make sure I put in things about, you know, um, the Council of Chalcedon. And I'm just like, yes. oh, people arguing about, is he God? Is he not God? I'm like, can we just move on to what's important? <laughs> you know? Right, um, right. I mean, obviously it's important to a certain extent, but then it's like, you know, we, we spent so much time and years arguing about these things. And this is, I feel like this is why we're here. We're, why we are here where we are now. Um, right. Well, and again, so this goes back into like what has to be deconstructed, right? And and it conversion was some sort of, became some sort of ascent. Like, like conversion is how we become Christian, right? It's the fundamental piece of evangelical Christianity, right? The first and second great, great awakenings are built on the idea that there are a lot of Christians who are saying they're Christians, including priests, that are not actually converted and have not had a true authentic conversion experience and therefore are not. And so we've got to have a ma ma massive revival that goes through the whole country to try to convert all the people, including all the priests and all the people who are already attending religious services. Right. So there's some good parts about that. But a lot of it is really uh, a lot of it's authentic, but a lot of it's not because it's based in this sort of idea that, well, what is conversion? Right. And so. A lot of people are running around saying all you have to do, right, is to have a genuine religious experience, uh, whatever the hell that means, um, that you can describe. So date and time when you were saved, right, and that you can describe this experience. So already we're preferencing people who, ha who, who are highly linguistic, who are who got who is public speakers, extroverted people. Um, we're not dealing with any possible uh, ability or disability issues that could possibly be present in that question. And then we're saying <clears throat> that it's an ascent. Oh, the conversion is an ascent to the Lordship of Christ, an ascent to the divinity of Christ, an ascent to Christ's Lordship over one's personal life, right? And Lordship in general. And very little of it has to do with morality. Now, in both of the Great Awakenings, there are all kinds of conversations about morality. Sometimes it's anti-drinking. Sometimes, you know, Charles Finney was actually anti-capitalist and he was early evangelical for folk. People don't understand that about Charles Finney. He also had some really egalitarian views of women. 
but he, you know, he also participated in this great awakening. And so conversion has meant different things depending upon the particular evangelist you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Billy Graham, and it's about going to heaven when you die, you know, securing your eternal reality. Um, almost none of it is about your material existence here and life here no. and a change in what it means to live here. And that's, that's because conversion is built around the concept of preserving the institution of slavery in America. Mm -hmm. The very idea of conversion is developed so as to preserve the dehumanization of black people, the supremacy of white people, and the institution of slavery. Yeah. There is, and, and it doesn't matter that some of the Great Awakenings led to abolitionist movements. They were still built in a conversion idea that was so torn away from material reality that the religion continued to prop up systems of oppression in our society. Because right it goes from slavery to Jim Crow and they're still preaching that conversion mess. Yeah. Right. All through the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties. Right. That's when Billy Graham comes along and, and you have these revivals. It's the same kind of evangelical Christianity divorced from the reality of, 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 of oppression in yeah. America. Then as we begin to wrap up, I have a question that I, you know, a conversation piece, you know, it seems that there are quite a few, um, younger-ish folks who are gravitating to these uh, churches that are multicultural, uh, we'll call them that, um, evangelical-esque, um, we'll call them that. Um, and there seems to be this desire on some, not all of, not everybody, but there seems to be this, this you know, strong enough desire that people want to be in these multicultural spaces. There's something that feels redemptive about them. Like, look at me, I go to church with, all Asian white people and all kinds of people. Look at me. I'm like, I'm cool. Like, you know, this is our multicultural thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, where, where does that come from as we're, you know, wrapping up this conversation? Where does that, is that also a form of the myth? Is that, how is that exercised? Right. I'm just trying to make sense of it as I'm witnessing this growing collective of, you know, um, I don't want to name the church, but there's this huge church in Charlotte. Um, and <laughs> they're, well, they're yeah. really, working really hard to get black people in there. So they started hiring some black worship leaders and they're making all these cool music videos and things. And there's this like push to be like, look, this is, this is the real kingdom of God. Yeah. One of the most humiliating and embarrassing statements I've ever heard someone say before. And I can't even remember who said it now at this point was that Stephen Furtick preaches to more black people every week than any black preacher in Charlotte. That is there's so much to deconstruct there yeah. that we don't, we need to do a whole nother podcast. So I'm just, well, you put, let's put a pin in that one. Um, but let's come back. Let's go back to the multicultural idea. Yeah. So I think it's an aspirational, it's an, it's an aspirational goal that is somehow tied to kingdom. What we imagine because we've read the book of revelation that there will be people from all nations and tribes and ethnicities around singing in this um, incredible choir in the book of revelation you can't deny the vision even if you're a biblical literist you have to look at it right yeah and so the question is how do we get there right and um does every particular church need to model that eschatological vision that's an interesting question um so this idea that i think that's where people they feel like they're worshiping the way the kingdom was intended where there is no bound there is no distinctions and there's a multicultural aspect so it's like 
you know, and a lot of this, a lot of those churches are popular in places that are not very multicultural as communities, right? That are predominantly very white places. Multicultural churches become very exciting. Like nobody's talking about the bang of multicultural churches in Brooklyn, right? Like it's not like, that's not a new thing, right? <laughs> that's yeah. not, it's very interesting in suburban Charlotte, but it's not interesting in a very diverse place. Like, um, you know, a super diverse place in New York that's been diverse forever. Um, I will say, I think that if the aspiration by the white leaders is to diversify their community without attending to the whiteness, all they're really doing is including people in whiteness. They mm -hmm. are right. You're just, you're just, just assume it's like any diversity initiative at a white bank. You know, you're just yeah. saying, come, come figure out how to be white, you know, we're, and or let's dilute our whiteness a little bit somehow. But you're not even really diluting it that much when you're assimilating people into white culture and white white power or the ascendancy, white ascendancy, right? Which is tied to economic capitalism and and progress and all kinds of visions of human flourishing there. But I think so. I'll give it one story that I think illustrates the problem of this. We had I can't say names, but I uh, did a group of clergy who went through the whiteness group with me, uh, who were retired clergy. One of the clergy who went through would just retired from 40 years of leading the largest multicultural church in a particular state, in a very white Midwestern state. Okay. He was the pastor of the largest multicultural church in that state for 40 years. And in the course of going, doing some work on race before the course, but also in the course, he said, I led a multicultural church for 40 years and I had no idea how my whiteness was impacting my staff or members. Mm -hmm. So why is that a problem? <laughs> it's a it's a real problem because that means that colorblind Christianity in a multicultural setting can make it impossible for the head clergy person to understand how their power and their whiteness is operating in harm on the lives of others in their context, not even just overt harm, even implicit harm or just accidental harm, you know, or how the construction of what it means to be human, let alone Christian in a, in a context like that is determined by the person who is the most prevalent and present and who has the most power. And how do you do the deconstruction on that? And he said, I, I went through my whole career, you know, and now I got to, I have to reckon with that. I've got to wrestle with that. So I, I see that as a, a, a warning to multicultural church leaders, particularly white multicultural church leaders, is you should be talking about whiteness more than anybody else if your setting is becoming more diverse. Yeah. Uh, because that means you you now have people who you have a st that are stakeholders of your organization that um, that you can't continue to harm, that you can't continue to live in colorblindness around. Uh, you have a responsibility. Yeah. But of course, you know, responsibility in white people, it's like oil and water. Well, I hope that it doesn't be, I hope that it doesn't continue to be that way. Cause I, <laughs> I would like yes. to see some responsibility taken. And I, I think that was a good, a good, you know, closing point. Um, just sort of thinking about the dangers of colorblindness. And I, you know, I find it offensive um, because <laughs> for various reasons, um, I think it's stupid, but that's, that's well, not I was actually going to ask you, can we, could you mind, do you mind ending on that a little bit? I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Like when you hear someone say in a church setting, 
Like, I don't see color. We're all made in the image of God. What goes through your mind? Just give us like three minutes on that. First of all, okay, so I think it's stupid. I think it's anti-biblical. So be, but besides it being stupid, that sounds very intellectual argument. <laughs> I think that, you know, I, I first of all, for you to not see, to you not acknowledge my blackness is dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think about it all the time, right? I can't help it. So I, I feel like you should have to think about it too. Uh, for all of our safety. Um, but even when you look at the, the biblical text, like, you know, I've I preached Acts 8 seven times. I don't know how many times where the mm. Ethiopian eunuch is baptized by Philip. They are very clear markers in the text that when something is written in the Bible, it's there on purpose, right? Mm. After all the editing that was done, right? It's there on yeah. purpose. So when they talk about this black man getting <laughs> baptized in the middle of a desert, right? Yeah. I think that that's intentional. And so mm -hmm. I so mm -hmm. I think that colorblind Christianity is anti-biblical. I think that, you know, they wouldn't list all these nations and all these different people that were converted in X if it wasn't important. It, that's such a good point. Important. Yeah, Jesus doesn't say like, no, they're not a Samaritan. They're made in the image of God. Right. No, no, he, that, he just says like, dude, the Samaritan stuff is for real, but we still yeah. got to love these people, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's that's kind of where I go with that. Um, with, yeah. You know, I try to give him a little Bible with the argument. But otherwise, I think it's silly. I mean, you know, I it's 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 uh, it's centering whiteness in a very peculiar way. Right. <laughs> so uh, but yeah. I mean, you know, we're out of time. So I have to do another. We have to do a part. Two of this, we'll do another one on that. Yeah. Churches and other things, you know, and why, you know, I'm curious to maybe I need to bring a you know a guest on as to why we feel that so many, particularly younger black people are drawn to these spaces. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I have a lot of peers who are just kind of like, I don't, they don't, you know, why, why, why is this happening? Why is our generation um, abandoning the black church or the black experience mm -hmm. or not just a white church, but the evangelical white church. That right, that's right. A certain kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. um, but on that note, this has been a very <laughs> fruitful conversation. <laughs> yeah, this has been good today. Uh, join us next time. I have some special guests lined up. And so I hope that you stay tuned to hear what they have to say on topics. Thank you for joining. This is Sacred Justice. Friends, that was our episode this week. As always, please email your questions and your suggestions to Reverend Mia McLean at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. Until next time, take care. This is Sacred Justice.